0: Good morning, glory and evening, Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt, broadcasting today from Santa Paula, California, the home of Thomas Aquinas College. And this is really a very providential meeting of news and circumstance. The circumstances, I stopped here last Memorial Day weekend, because I'd heard about Thomas Aquinas College for many, many years from my friend, John Agresta, who was president of St. John's University and many other people in the Roman Catholic community in Southern California across the United States. So I was driving up to Ohio with the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt and uh, went by way of the back road and stopped and was greeted by the wonderful Ann Forsyth, who chose us around the campus and took me into the most wonderful chapel I have been in, in the United States. And I learned about the prayers and I got to come back here and broadcast. And so we worked setting up this broadcast For six months, this date worked, this date didn't work. We changed, we canceled, we innovated, whatever. It's the 40th anniversary of Thomas Aquinas College, so it's a great year to be here. Well, we settled on this Friday a couple of months ago, and lo and behold, I turn up being at a rigorously orthodox Roman Catholic institution on the day the president attempts to heal a divide in the country over the rights of Free exercise owed not just, of course, to Roman Catholics, but to any person of faith in the United States by the First Amendment. He failed entirely. In fact, Catholic writer Jimmy Aiken said the evil policy is now more evil. And in fact, Jimmy Aiken is right, uh, because what was yesterday merely a mandate that included a religious exemption for at least churches that are actually churches, that is now gone. Everyone in the United States who now buys insurance for their employees is going to have to pay for not just contraception, but also sterilization and the morning after pill. And before long, believe it or not, friends, they're just gonna mandate abortion outright. So what do we think about this quote, close quote compromise? It is nothing of the sort, it is a sham, it is a ploy. The bishops have not yet spoken though, and just gave me the statement of this afternoon by Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, the new Archbishop out here. Uh, I haven't read it, but I'll read it blind. The fe- I'm so confident of what it's going to say. The federal government's new mandate requiring Catholic charity schools, universities, and hospitals to supply employees with health insurance that covers birth control, sterilization, and abortion-inducing drugs has become maybe the most controversial issue of our day. I've been inspired by the unified reaction from our Catholic community. The bishops of almost every diocese in the country have spoken out, so have our largest Catholic institutions. Many individual Catholics of every political opinion of united in opposition. Other religious groups and many other Americans have also joined the protests because this new mandate, of course, affects every employer in America. As this debate continues, it's important to remember that the Catholic Church did not choose this conflict. Archbishop Gomez continues The Church wants to be a partner with our neighbors and our government in building a more just and peaceful society, more worthy of the dignity of the human person who is the image of God. The Church's mission in our society is to teach, heal, and to care for others, to pray and to lead our neighbors to God. Our freedom to carry out our mission is totally threatened by this new mandate. May I repeat that? Our freedom to carry out our mission is totally threatened by this new mandate. But we are not just protecting our own parochial interests. As I have said, the issue at stake go far beyond the morality of contraception. This government mandate threatens the basic character of our society and puts every American's freedom at risk. America was founded to be a diverse society with many layers of institutions and affiliations. America's founders understood that human life is more than politics or economics. They created structures of government and economic system intended to promote individual liberty. Archbishop Gomez continues, they also created a space of freedom in which a rich civil society could grow all sorts of independent churches and religions, neighborhood groups, clubs, volunteer organizations, trade unions, leagues, charities, foundations, and more. People are realizing that if the government denies our fundamental freedom to hold religious beliefs and to order our lives according to these beliefs. Then there is no real freedom for anyone. In the founders vision of civil society, churches and religious agencies held a special place. The archbishop continues. They believed religion was essential for democracy to flourish because religion instills the values and virtues people need for, you got it, self-government. That's why the First Amendment protects churches and individuals from the government meddling in what they believe or in how they express and live out those beliefs. It's also why the government has always felt comfortable providing funding for church charities and ministries that serve the common good of all Americans. What's been happening in recent decades is that the government at all levels has been exerting greater influence in almost every area of American life. In the process, writes the Archbishop of Los Angeles, non-governmental institutions are being crowded out of our public life. Civil society is shrinking and the influence of civic associations in our lives is getting weaker. The rights and freedoms of churches are increasingly restricted by court orders and government policies. Religious freedom is now reduced to the freedom to pray and to go to church. And more and more church agencies are now treated as they are arms of the government. Increasingly, these agencies are expected to serve and submit to the government's agendas and priorities. None of this, the Archbishop continues, is good for our democracy or our individual liberties. America's founders knew that a strong civil society and flourishing faith communities are our last best protection against tyranny, against the government becoming too big and all powerful and all controlling in our lives. That is why I think this new mandate has struck such a nerve, not only with Catholics and other believers, but also with millions of our fellow citizens. People are realizing that the government denies our fundamental freedom to hold religious beliefs and to order our lives according to these beliefs, that there is no real freedom for anyone. This new mandate moves us closer to what Pope Benedict XVI warned against in his first encyclical, God is Love. The state which would provide everything, absorbing everything into itself, a state which regulates and controls everything. When I first wrote about this new mandate two weeks ago, I said this is a time for Catholic action and Catholic voices. This is still the time, he writes on Friday afternoon. We need to defend our rights as Catholics, not only to pray and to worship, but also to express our faith through our Catholic institutions to make our own contribution to decisions that affect the common good and the future of our society. We also need to help our political leaders understand what is at stake in this debate. My brother bishops and I in the US Catholic Conference of Bishops are supporting legislation that would rescind this unjust policy. And he goes on to say, go ahead and go read all that. And that was published today, uh, February 10th, 2012. Also today from John Garvey, president of the Catholic University of America. Mary Ann Glendon, the great professor of law, former ambassador to the Vatican at Harvard University. Robbie George, frequent guest on this program, professor of jurisprudence at Princeton. Uh, Carter Sneed, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, and Yuval Levin, heritage, uh, uh, a, a Hertog fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, all good constitutional scholars, extraordinary constitutional scholars, said this in a single statement, in a single worded title statement that is uh, denominated unacceptable. Today, the Obama administration has offered what is styled as a, quote, accommodation for religious institutions in the dispute over the HHS mandate for coverage without cost sharing of abortion-inducing drugs, sterilization, and contraception. The administration will now require all insurance plans cover, cost-free, these same products and services. Once a religiously affiliated or believing individual employer purchases insurance, as it must by law, the insurance company will then contact the insured employees to advise them of the terms of the policy, which include for those objectionable things. The so-called accommodation changes nothing of moral substance and fails to remove the assault on religious liberty and the rights of conscience, which gave rise to the controversy. It is certainly no compromise. The reason for our original bipartisan uproar was the administration's insistence that religious employers, be they institutions or individuals, provide insurance that covered services they regard as gravely immoral and unjust. Under the new rule, the government still coerces religious institutions and individuals to purchase insurance policies that include the very same services. I'm at one of those. Thomas Aquinas College is one of those. We'll be talking with the president of this institution after the break about the, the problem this presents. But I go back to the, what the scholars say. It is no answer to respond that religious employers are not paying for this aspect of the insurance coverage. For one thing, it's unrealistic to suggest that insurance companies will, pass, will not pass the cost of these additional services on to purchasers. More importantly, abortion drugs, sterilizations, and contraceptives are a necessary feature of the policy purchased by the religious institution of the believing individual. They will only be made available to those who are insured under such a policy by virtue of the terms of the policy. It is morally obtuse for the administration to suggest, as it does, that this is a meaningful accommodation of religious liberty. Because the insurance company will be the one to inform the employee that she is entitled to the embryo-destroying five-day-after pill pursuant to the insurance contract purchased by the religious employer. It does not matter who explains the terms of the policy purchased by the religiously affiliated or observant employer. What matters is what services that policy covers. This is like elementary stuff. This is really uh, high school level logic that the president attempted to uh, avoid or at least uh, uh, presume that people listening could be easily fooled. The professors conclude the simple fact is that the Obama administration is compelling religious people and institutions who are employers to purchase a health insurance contract that provides abortion-inducing drugs, contraception, and sterilization. This is a grave violation of religious freedom and cannot stand. It is an insult to the intelligence of Catholics, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and other people of faith and conscience to imagine that they will accept assault on their religious liberty if only it is covered up by a cheap accounting trick. Finally, it bears noting that sustaining the original Nair exemption for churches, auxiliaries, and religious orders, the administration has effectively admitted that the new policy, like the old one, amounts to a grave infringement on religious liberty. The administration still fails to understand that institutions that employ and serve others of different or no faith are still engaged in a religious mission. As such, enjoy the protection of the First Amendment. I think all the bishops are going to get here, uh, probably by Monday. And... uh, and the protests will go on, and the considerable political activity stirred up among Democrats. There isn't a Republican in the country running for office who is going to be in favor of this outrageous mandate. But I think the Democrats are going to realize that when the president of Planned Parenthood stands up and applauds a new policy, a so-called compromise, it's not a compromise. It's a trick. Now, we'll get down to what is a uniquely Catholic institution when we come back as we broadcast from Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula. Today, you're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Dr. Michael McLean, President of Thomas Aquinas, joins me. Uh, President McLean, thanks for having me on your campus today. You're very welcome, Hugh. We're glad to have you. You know, I have been to... Uh Uh, William Jessup, I have been to Regent, I have been to Hillsdale, I have been to Biola, I have never been to a Roman Catholic campus before, so this is my first. Thank you for having me.
1: Well I hope you enjoy it, and uh, I'm sure the uh, broadcast is going to go
0: very well. All right, now tell me, tell the audience before we talk about this policy that I opened the show with, a little bit about Thomas Aquinas, congratulations, 40 years you've been in this valley. Exactly right.
1: we're a, a, a thoroughly Catholic college. We were founded in 1971, uh, began with 33 students. Uh, actually, our first campus was, on, was in Calabasas, which is about an hour south of here. We've been on this site since 1978. Uh, I joined the faculty in 1978, so I've been here about 34 years. Uh, we've gradually built our enrollment from the original 33 up to about 355 right now. We have uh, over 35 full-time teaching faculty, and we've uh, been committed to the same academic program from the very beginning. A program which requires students to study four years of serious Catholic theology and philosophy, uh, four years of natural science, four years of mathematics, uh, four years of literature, a year of music, and two years of language, in which we study Latin. Uh, our classes all employ what we call the great books, those books that have stood the test of time and really formed a Western civilization. Uh, moreover, uh, we conduct our classes as small, rigorous discussions uh, with between 15 and 18 students. Uh, so that uh, our goal is uh, to have the students actively engaged in their education, uh, really thinking through the issues and themes that arise in the books, and uh, making the material their own, uh, learning the arts of listening, reasoning, analysis. And uh, we think uh, we've been very successful through these years, and we look forward to uh, another 40.
0: Well, congratulations on 40, and now 335 students did you say in residence How About now?
1: 355.
0: 355, yeah. And graduates around the world, I, I saw your 40th anniversary book from uh, the Afghanistan base lieutenant in the Marine Corps to uh, cl- uh, clergy all over the globe and healthcare professionals. It's an extraordinary accomplishment. 45.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Hugh. We're very proud of our alumni. Uh, they're serving uh, the church, the country, and their communities in all walks of life. Uh, medicine, law, education. They're raising uh, good families, we think, and uh, we're especially proud, as you might uh, imagine, being a Catholic college with the number of religious vocations that have come out of the school. We've ordained uh, right around 53 Catholic priests in in 40 years of of history uh, and another 35 or 36 uh, women religious uh, pursuing their vocations around the world.
0: So what is it that makes it distinctly Catholic?
1: Well, I think it's our first of all, our commitment to the uh, uh, the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. We take that very seriously. We take our faith commitment very seriously. Uh, And following the guidance of the Catholic Church, uh, the study of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, as you can imagine, this being Thomas Aquinas College, the study of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas occupies a principal uh, place in our curriculum. So uh, our uh, four years of theology begin with the study of Scripture in the first year, uh, the study of the fathers, early fathers of the church in the second year, and culminates in the third and fourth year with a careful study of of the most important parts of St. Thomas's Summa, of theology. Uh, and the church has throughout its history recommended St. Thomas as one of the, as the perhaps principal theologian uh, in its intellectual tradition. And we're honored uh, to uh, take him very seriously and encourage our students to study his works with great effort and energy.
0: Now, I'm also going to stress for the benefit of the audience across the United States, from Alaska down to Florida and from New York out to Hawaii, this is a thoroughly Catholic campus, the Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity Chapel, which is beautiful. I'm going to talk to to, uh, the architect about this. Really one of the most extraordinary uh, houses of worship I've ever been in, and it's relatively young. It's so gorgeous. But uh, how often do students attend Mass, and what is the quote, requirement, close quote, about that?
1: Well, we don't uh, have a requirement per se for Mass attendance. We do offer four Masses a day. Uh, we have uh, an extraordinary form, uh, Latin Tridentine Mass, very first thing in the morning, and then three uh, ordinary form, or Novus Ordo, Ordo Forms of the mass uh, the rest of the day, uh, I say our daily mass attendance is very high. Probably 75 to 80 percent of the students attend mass daily, but it's not a requirement. Uh, they do so I think out of their uh, love for God, the good Catholic formation that they've received at home, and uh, I think I think the educational program with its with its emphasis on the study of scripture, uh, the study of of uh, Saint Thomas's. Uh, Uh, articles on the incarnation and the sacraments, uh, God's existence and attributes is really uh, conducive uh, to the spiritual life. And I think bears fruit in, uh, in their worship of God. And then of course, after, after graduation and their service to the church.
0: Now there is a statement of faith for your faculty. Uh, I can't, I don't know where I put it. I have it in here somewhere. Uh, So everyone who teaches here has got to sign the statement of faith.
1: Well, uh, yes. Uh, Specifically, all Catholic faculty take what we call the Oath of Fidelity and make a profession of faith when they're first appointed to the faculty. They do that in a public ceremony that's part of our convocation at which we open up every academic year, the beginning of the academic year. And we are very careful to appoint faculty, Catholic faculty, who take uh, their faith very seriously, and take their commitment to the church very seriously, and who agree uh, at the front end to uh, take the oath and make the profession of faith.
0: And this oath has always been here.
1: Uh, well, it's uh, it was something we implemented probably uh, ten or fifteen years ago, uh, but but the uh, what it signifies the fidelity to the Catholic faith. And the f- fidelity of the Catholic Church has always been an integral part and an essential part of this
0: college. Now, here's the tough question bordered by today's news. Right. Having taken this oath, can you can you sponsor an insurance plan that provides for the morning after pill?
1: Well, uh, it uh, in my opinion, I, I don't think we can. I mean, we take our commitment to the church's moral teachings very seriously. And uh, I think for us to in any way subsidize or enable... Uh, behaviors or medications or actions which the church has declared to be uh, immoral is something we can't possibly do. Uh, It's important that we uh, witness to our students and to our uh, constituents, to our benefactors, complete loyalty to the teachings of the church and i think that would mean uh, it would be impossible for us to either directly or indirectly subsidize uh, activities which are considered uh, in- immoral and sinful so now, no. i know
0: you haven't had a chance to study it yet but you heard me read the archbishop's letter and you heard me read the statement of the con law professors and you heard my analysis that this is a sham Uh, Do you have an an instinct that you are willing to say at this point, not having yet had a chance to study the actual regulations the president put forward about his so-called compromise?
1: Well, I heard the uh, president's press conference this morning, and uh, immediately I was struck with the fact that it seems to me that uh, his remarks did not in any essential way change the situation. Uh, What he's saying now is that uh, the institutions themselves won't... Uh, directly fund the services that are in question but rather the insurance companies Be uh, responsible for the uh, financial costs associated with those services.
0: America 2 here broadcasting today from Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula, California. Great book school, thoroughly Roman Catholic. I have three uh, guests in front of me right now from the class of uh, 2012, Nathan Dunlop, from the class of 2013, Ashley Gracer, and Thomas Quackenbush from the class of 2014. Welcome to you all. I'm going to start with the senior. Nathan, where are you from
2: originally? San Jose, California. Okay, and and so you're graduating this year. Yeah, in May. What do you intend to do next year? I want to enter the animation industry for film and television. And how did you pick that up at a great book school? (laughs) I had that idea before I came here. Did they Um, add to your skill set? I think so. Um, animation is storytelling, and we read a lot of books here, which help me think carefully. And we read a lot of literature, which familiarizes me with some of the greatest stories. So, I think it has helped me in a fundamental way. Yeah.
0: Ashley Gracier, you're a junior. What are you studying? You're all studying the same thing, but what is your objective after you're done? Get close to the microphone.
3: After I'm finished, I think I want to go into grad school and get a master's or a doctorate, possibly in theology.
0: In theology. Yeah,
3: theology Where are you from or originally? I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico.
0: Okay, California and Albuquerque. Let's mm-hmm. go to Nathan Dunn and uh, Thomas Plackenbush then. Thomas, you are a sophomore. Yes, sir. Where are you from?
4: Well, I was born in Indiana when my parents were at Notre Dame, but I've lived in Ohio for the last 20 years. All right, and so what do you intend to do post Thomas Aquinas? You know, I don't really know. Um, I played baseball and did music before I came to the school, so I sort of dropped both of those to come here. Um, and I don't really have a
0: coherent plan for my life after school. All right, Nathan, uh, you're the senior. Uh, What was the most surprising thing about a great book school? Most surprising thing? Uh... It's radio,
2: you have to talk.
0: (laughs) 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 You can't think, this is not a tutorial.
2: Probably the, uh, the amount of friends I've made here
0: which book most surprised you that Mich- you enjoyed that you didn't expect to Nietzsche oh, oh I think your faculty members are turning their heads upside down why
2: because he takes I think he sees a lot of true things but he denies God and um, he recognizes the true things but it's interesting to see what happens when you lose God and then what happens to the true things well, Ashley how about yourself what was the most surprising thing about a great book
0: school
3: well, um, one of the most surprising books I read recently was David, uh, er, Bishop Barclay, who denied that anything exists and that everything, he says that everything that we see is merely our own perception. It was kind of exciting to imagine everything as something merely in our senses and not actually existent. So it's kind of fun to like read the crazy things that have gone before and try to see them. Which course light. was that in? That was in seminar, junior seminar, Bishop Barclay.
0: I don't know Bishop Barclay.
3: Yeah, he's a crazy guy. All right. I'm,
0: I'll take your- <laughs> Word on that. All right, Thomas, how about you? What's the most surprising thing in two years or a year and a half in the great books?
4: Uh, not so much a book as just the fact that uh, coming here, I was told by a lot of people uh, leaving public school and coming in here that nothing I'd be doing would be practical. Um, and seeing how much I have changed as a person studying these things and um, spending time in class, being able to formulate my thoughts clearly and speak coherently, um, going back and talking to those same people, after I left, I see that my life's changed in a more
0: dramatic way than people who are studying so-called practical things. Were you Catholic when you got here? Yes, sir. Are you more so or the same amount of Catholic now?
4: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm still Catholic. Um, I've definitely grown in an appreciation for my faith, um, grown, especially going through th- the theology tutorial. I'm forced b- both to, um, to study my faith in sort of an intellectual way and also to live it um, through the spiritual life provided by the college. Ashley, how about you? More or less Catholic than when you
5: came?
3: I'd say I'm definitely more. Like I've grown exponentially in appreciation for my faith through not only my classes, but also through the sacramental life here, through the life of the community. I've grown to see the beauty beauty and profundity of the intellectual and spiritual tradition of the Catholic Church, and to see it work out in every aspect of my life. The way I relate to other people, the way I live day in and day out, like the way I feel when I wake up in the morning, it's all different because of this school and education I received here.
2: Nathan. I'm not sure I can say it any better than Ashley, except that perhaps having the chaplains around 24-7 is a real help. How so? Um, Just having someone to always talk to. Confession is always available and they can answer any question on the Catholic faith. What would you three, this is a tough question to ask
0: young people, um, especially when President McLean was just up here, but I'll ask you, what would your opinion be of the college if they submitted to the President's edict of either last week or today? What do you think, uh, Thomas? Uh, That would be a I
4: think grave failing in our um and we claim to be Catholic, and mm-hmm. if we submitted to that, we wouldn't be acting in a manner corresponding to what we say.
2: Nathan, what do you think? Get close to the microphone. I agree with Thomas. You would be disappointed in the school. Yeah, I think that would be a mistake. Ashley.
3: I too would be disappointed. I think we should hold true to the te- to our Catholic tradition and to the authority, teaching authority of the church. And I, I know, one would be really disappointed if the college didn't uphold that. You
0: three are tremendous representatives of Thomas Aquinas. Thank you for joining me. On I'm coming right back with the architect of this extraordinary chapel, Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity here in Santa Paula, California, on the campus of Thomas Aquinas. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Today from the campus of Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula, California, joined now from the Atlanta airport by Duncan Stroik, who is an architect based in South Bend, Indiana. He's also an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture. He's the director and editor of the Institute for Sacred Architecture, and he is the architect of the Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity Chapel, uh, which is literally yards from where I am broadcasting today, an extraordinarily beautiful chapel. All of the, uh, his website work is available at www.stroik.com, S-T-R-O-I-K.com. Duncan Strike, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show, and congratulations. What an extraordinary chapel you designed.
5: Well, I'm glad you liked it, Hugh. It was, a, it was a 10-year project, and we had a great time doing it.
0: Now, at 10 years, it combines, as, as your website says, classical and early California architecture, but why why does it take that long to put together this kind of a church in this kind of a place?
5: Well, um, I guess you'd say good things take a while, but, uh, more to the point, um, uh, Dr. Dillon, president Dillon, who was the patron, uh, wanted to do it right. And we had to raise money. And so everything was done carefully and it wasn't rushed. And, um, and I, I hope that it, uh, it uh, being built, it looks that way.
0: It does. And of course, today we're talking on a day when the president is talking about freedom of religion in America. And obviously you had to submit your architecture to the civil authorities, correct? There was no debate that it had to be up to earthquake regulations and things like that. Correct. And so, uh, given that, did you nevertheless able to completely honor your commitment to Catholic dogma in the architecture of the chapel?
5: Oh, certainly. In fact, um, we were able to do more than we originally planned just because of Dr. Dillon's vision and support from friends. Um, I would say the, the biggest challenges from the uh, community were concerns about the, how it would look from the highway. And so we did a number of drawings to show how you would see it from the highway, the bell tower and the dome. And uh, no surprise to us when the community saw it, they said, "Well, this is beautiful. This is a this is a beautiful addition." doesn't take away from um, uh, the, the highway, it makes it more beautiful.
0: Absolutely. Approaching from the south today, that struck me again just how uh, wonderfully it rises. But what I'm, The point I'm getting to is that the church will work with civil authorities to the extent that civil authorities do not impede upon their essential mission or dogma, as you did with the local authorities in Santa Paula. But if the president, for example, and I don't expect you to do theology unless you'd like to, uh, Duncan Strike, the, professor, uh, the president asked people to change their essential theological Logical, the Church can't bend on that.
5: No, no. And, and we believe as Catholics that there are eternal truths, and we believe that we're participating in the same liturgy. It may have developed but the same liturgy instituted by Christ. And so we want to base the architecture on those eternal principles or those longstanding principles that we've seen from the best of uh, sacred architecture of the last 2,000 years.
0: Duncan Strike, if you explain to the architects who are listening in their Air Legion, I lack the vocabulary. Would you describe the chapel in terms that they will find particularly resonant for your professional colleagues?
5: Well, um, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's it's meant to be a cruciform uh, church with an interior that has um, uh, columns and arches. And then at the crossing a dome. And what's interesting about all of that on the inside is that um, that sounds all very traditional, but the, the actually the mixture of columns and arches and the dome are not are actually fairly uncommon in Europe. So we did something somewhat innovative uh, on the inside. And then the outside is meant to draw on the Spanish tradition of California as well as what the uh, college asked for. They wanted to draw on the best, uh, you know, the best works of uh, Catholic architecture from all time. No salt order.
0: Now, now, Duncan strike how how daunting was that prospect? And, and also, how energizing? It seems to me to be the commission of a lifetime for someone to get to build a chapel of this uniqueness in this setting.
5: I think that's right. I think it was—I uh, didn't find it daunting, I like challenges, and I like uh, the chance to do something that is fully traditional and classic, but at the same time has some, let's say, innovative aspects. Or, and um, as one great uh, classical architect put it, uh, uh, doing classical architecture is like playing chess against the best who have ever done it. And so. There's kind of a, a very positive competition against all the best works of
0: the past. And and how do you judge whether or not you have succeeded? By the number of reviews that you pile up in this lifetime, or by the, uh, the connectedness a worshiper feels to the sacrament, or both?
5: Well, I, yeah, I'd like to believe the main goal is that people see it, they understand it as a holy place, and as a, a, a beautiful place, and... Maybe it's unique or maybe it's special, um, and that the people who are drawn there uh, are drawn to prayer, and even those who aren't believers would be drawn there. Um, So that's the main goal, and I guess the real proof of the pudding uh, is how it's used, but really over time. I, I would like to think uh, classical architecture proves itself by not just being appreciated now, but you know, generations from now.
0: And where did you go? What did you study for the California influence, the, the missions? Did you go to any particular place to get the California influence just right, which you did?
5: Well, we looked at a bunch of the missions, and of course, they're small. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, so there's a simplicity about the, the, the backs and the sides of the church that come from the missions. And the interior, actually, one of the things that Tom Dillon and I did a lot of was we compared the uh, chapel to all kinds of buildings across the world in terms of dimensions and proportions. So one of the things he was delighted to find out was um, uh, San Juan Bautista that the interior of that mission was very similar to his chapel. And once he went into San Juan Bautista, and he felt it, and he said, this feels really good, and uh, now I know what it's going to feel like to go into our church, even though the aesthetic is, you know, is different.
0: Well, it is certainly gorgeous. I have not been to that one, but my congratulations, uh, Duncan Strike, on an amazing work of art and uh, would send everyone to www.strike.com or perhaps to thomasaquinas.edu to see pictures of it. Thanks for joining us on a busy travel day. I hope you get out of Atlanta on schedule. Yeah. I'll- <laughs> I'll be right back, America, from the campus of of Thomas Aquinas College. I hope you got the point of that, not just to tell you about a thing of beauty, but to note how everything works together at a Catholic institution and has to be in accord with Catholic doctrine, something the president is not recognizing when he says now this wonderfully unified place has to adopt his particular ideology. 55 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt, broadcasting today from the campus of the beautiful Thomas Aquinas College, a great books college in Santa Paula, California, Roman Catholic to its core. The only trouble with this visit is that the audience is so super serious. They're, I, I think they're, they're all thinking a lot, and they're just thinking great thoughts about great books, and they're sitting here, all these wonderfully serious If you love the idea of a great books curriculum, as I do and have said many times, our friends at Biola do it, of course, under the guidance of John Mark. Reynolds and my friend John Agresta ran the Johnnies down in New Mexico for so long. Come up and visit. And if you're a high school student and you think that sounds wonderful, uh, they have a high school summer program which you can learn about at ThomasAquinas.edu. And if you just want to come visit, the best time to do that is by uh, by calling up the director of development and foresight and saying I want to come and see it. But if you want to help it, there's a golf tournament. On Monday, May the 21st at Sherwood Country Club, which you'll never see unless you participate in this golf tournament, because Sherwood is really, we're talking super hard to get onto. If you're a golfer, help out. Go to thomasquintus.edu. On the question of the president's announcement today, I got an email from my buddy, the secular Jew, Hank. Uh, I say that because Hank and I are co-authors of a book on the fair tax. He's a retired partner from Deloitte Touche. He teaches accounting at Chapman University, where I teach law. And he doesn't mind my saying, he's a secular Jew. It's like, ask a Jew too, I talk to Dennis and then I talk to Hank. Here's what Hank writes. He's an accountant, remember, and a very good one, senior partner at Deloitte. Hugh, at the end of the day, the compromise requires the church, directly or indirectly, to fund the morning after pill. I cannot imagine that the bishops can buy into this. My piece below gets to the point that the president must now clearly be indicating that life does not begin at conception. I would love some survey data, but I would guess that there's a significant portion of the public that believes there is no distinction between abortion and the morning-after pill. And I think, Hank, you are right. This is what he writes for wider consumption. Obamacare provides that an employer must provide health insurance or face severe penalties. The birth control compromise offered today by the president provides that church-related charity need not provide birth control as part of its health insurance policy for employees, But the insurance company selected by the church-related charity must provide these services to its employees for free. If we are looking for a distinction without a difference, we have found it. Looking only at the economics, someone has to pay for what can amount to a $60 a month benefit. Who will pay for this, quote, free benefit? There are only two alternatives. Either the free benefit will be included in the cost of the religious-related charity's premium, or it will be spread to every premium of every client of the insurance company. Either way, it will be, either way, the religious-related charity is going to pay for all or a portion of the birth control benefit for its employees. Nothing is free. We learned two things here. The underlying philosophy on this issue, writes Hank, at the White House is that they are in- insisting on the substance of the requirement that all employers, including religiously affiliated organizations, must provide for birth control and the morning after pill and sterilization for their employees. However, they are willing to engage in a subterfuge to get there. Think rationalization because this compromise is nothing more than that. The second thing we learn is that the president has either come to a partial conclusion as to when life begins or he does not believe that anyone who funds the death of an embryo is complicit in its death. He goes on to talk a great th- I'll post it later, but uh, Hank, my secular Jewish accountant friend, got right to the heart of it. A distinction without a difference. Nothing changed today, and I don't think you'll see the bishop change their opinion. More from Thomas Aquinas College when
5: I return to hour number two of today's Hugh Hewitt Show. Contrary to your doctrine. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show.